Corinthians 1, 10 to 18. Divisions in the church. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and, th and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. This is the word of the Lord. power in parenting. Oh, children, you are dismissed. I'm sorry. I, th I thought I, I was unclear. You may go. I'll miss you. bound down the aisle is one of the greatest joys of the week. If I did it, it wouldn't look nearly as cute, and I would uh, probably stumble around tomorrow afterward. So, would you pray with me? Father, as we come to this time where we look at your word, may my words be useful to your people, and may they speak truthfully uh, to the heart, and uh, heart of the gospel. We pray in Christ's name, amen. So there's a tradition in a lot of churches to wear your uh, fancy clothes. What do you call it? Your uh, the Sunday um, the Sunday best. I was going to wear my Sunday best this morning, but my wife would not let me. Of course, my Sunday best is the uh, Jason Kelsey jersey that I got for Christmas. And for those of you who are not Eagles fans, it is not too late to repent. And to turn around, please, as long as we don't have any 49ers fans here among us, uh, we, will, we will lay hands later and pray for you. But now it is exciting to have these kind of days and this rivalry and this fun. And, but of course, we also know that sometimes people can take sports, well, too far. 
But that is a picture that we can have of how we can divide up. How we can yoke our allegiances to something or to someone. How we can create divisions amongst a society. And often it's playful. Sometimes it goes a little too far. But that's not the only ways that we divide up, is it? We live in a world and culture that, that prizes unity, that speaks of being together with one another, that, that values community in word at least, but then when it comes time for deed, we, we seem to value a little bit more the breaking, the dividing, the cloistering, the rallying the troops. Now, of course, that happens in our world over all sorts of different things. Politics, class, education, town versus town, culture versus culture, race, ethnicity, age. All sorts of reasons that we can divide ourselves and divide ourselves so that we are surrounded by whom? People we look like, people we like, people we agree with, people we think like, people who are in, as enlightened as I am. Right? And that's what we do. Thankfully, that doesn't happen in the church. As we gather this Sunday morning across our great country, around this globe, we are united by the confession that we just confessed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty. We say this, we believe this, we are united in Christ. And that is the key. What brings us together isn't our affinities, isn't our devotions, isn't our proclivities, isn't our viewpoints. It is our union with Christ. However, what do churches tend to divide over? Well, how does the Holy Spirit work? We can split apart. What does happen when we take the Lord's table? We can divide. Should the carpet be blue or should it be red? Should we have pews or chairs? By the way, for the record, very sincerely, I'm on team blue. <laughs> but we all know that so many of these things that we truly divide over are not actually important. They're not actually at the core of what it means to be the gospel, but it, it's, it's at the core of what makes me feel comfortable. It's at the core of what makes me feel like I had a voice, I had a say. It's at the core of what makes me feel like, oh, I, I, I do belong here. And so it's in our very human nature to clump up, to cloister up, to divide. By the way, how often do we use the phrase human nature? Oh, well, you know, he's only human, right? Oh, it's just human nature. And what do we use that phrase to excuse? Harm, bad decisions, sometimes sin. So therefore, the very thing that makes us so comfortable to divide ourselves and carve ourselves up into tribal groups is something that we might also use to describe an error, a mistake, or a sinful desire. You see, te today's text that was just read before you from the first uh, chapter in 1 Corinthians, it's addressing the divisions that were amongst the, among this church. 
Now, to give you an idea about the, the Corinthian situation, um, I have just a quick question, and, and if you don't know the answer to this, it's all right that you don't know it, but I think there are a few people who've won a few Bible quiz bowls in their youth amongst you. Um, if I came to you and said, boy, it's a pleasure to be back here, you all remind me of the Corinthian church. Okay, by that laughter, I can already tell you are not probably going to want to invite me back. Because if I say, oh, you are you're so, uh, like just like the Corinthians, it's an insult because it means you are really, really dysfunctional, aren't you? You have some issues with unity. You have some issues with purity. You have some issues with the use of gifts for one another. You have abuses of the Eucharist. You, you have abuses of the Lord's table that have caused some among you to receive harsh judgment from God. So, by the way, I don't think that. I just thought I'd set that up. I didn't know why I said it. So let's just forget I did. But so the Corinthian church, so, so Corinth was actually a very Roman city. In 140 or so years before Jesus was born, Julius Caesar just decimated the town that was there and rebuilt it up. So unlike Athens, which is just across the isthmus from it, it's a very completely Roman city. And so the, and, and since it's part of the Roman Empire, it had a lot to be proud of. It had a lot to think it's great. It had a lot to esteem itself so to be from Corinth was indeed a badge of honor to at least, well, the Corinthians. Now, another thing about the background that you need to know is they did not have football on Sundays. They did not have, well, like we do today, they did not have streaming. They did not have the, the modes of entertainment that we do. So one of the things that was kind of a, a big deal in this time and period was when a new speaker, a new teacher would come to town. They came in and created... Well, a moment. Everybody would gather. And you know what happens when say, well, everybody was there. Everybody in town was there. We don't actually mean physically every person. But it's enough to say that the, most of the town was there and that everybody in town has heard about this. So at one point, the Apostle Paul entered into Corinth. He entered in and he started doing his thing. He went to the synagogue, he started preaching to the Jews, and he started proclaiming the good news. And some people looked at him and probably thought, mm, that's strange teaching. Who is this new teacher? Where does he? Oh, he's, okay. Hmm, interesting. And some other people heard it and went, oh. Oh, I get it. Jesus is Lord. You see, I don't think any culture looks around and isn't somewhat self-aware that the world is broken. I don't think any, at any point in human history we've ever looked around and thought that, no, this is perfection. We've got it all worked out and everything is doing well. Everybody faces death, so we know there's a break there. Everybody experiences disease, and we know there's a break there. Everybody has been wounded by a word the betrayal of a friend, the loss of a loved one, the dearly beloved leader who moved away. We all have these wounds, these hurts. So for us today, we're in the wake of another such moment in our country where we look deep into the soul of our people. We'd love to think that we are an enlightened people, that we are a noble country, that we have it, well, figured out a little bit better 
And then we hear about the killing in Memphis. And we realize that yet again, we don't have it together. Yet again, this world is broken. So in comes Paul to talk about this brokenness and yet this healing. This old world, but a new one is being born. He proclaimed a good news about Jesus. And some people believed, some people received, and they gathered together and they formed a community. They formed the first church in Corinth. And then Paul left. He went on as the Lord led him to start other communities across the Mediterranean. And in came some other people. If you look at Acts 18 and 19, you can hear about this gentleman named Apollos. Apollos was a very gifted orator, very talented. And it was interesting because he didn't, when he met with the church in Ephesus, he didn't understand everything about Jesus, but he had heard. See, he had been baptized by John, but he didn't know about Jesus' baptism yet. In Ephesus, he encountered the good news about Jesus, and the Holy Spirit instructed him and allowed him to understand. And so when he spoke and he taught, he was very dynamic and he was effective, but he was also truthful. So he was allowed to speak and to preach and to travel. And so after Paul left Corinth, in comes Apollos. Now, whatever we do know about Paul, and we kind of flesh it out and kind of create a bit of a narrative, Paul's a short little man with some, probably some bad attitude. I don't think he was a terribly funny human being. He seems like he was serious, but however, I just need to take an aside. Did anybody else just love this passage today? I think this is the funniest passage in the Bible, or one of them at least. If you have a funnier one, please show me. But listen to it. I mean, he says he's making his appeal. It's very serious. You all are divided. He's, he's, he comes to them and he charges them. And he says, Was, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I did not baptize any of you except for Crispus and Gaius. That way, no one can say that you're baptized in my name. And then he says, well, yes, I also baptized Stephanus and his family. But other than that, I don't remember anyone else. I love that. I just, for one, it lets me know this is a real letter written by a real person to real recipients. It's a letter. I picture it. I picture the intense, short Paul just pacing as he has a scribe. And he's saying, I never baptized any one of you. And then the person says, well, what about Crispus and Gaius? Well, yeah, but I didn't baptize anyone but them. So the scribe is there. He did not baptize anyone but them. And then somebody else chimes in, what about Stephanus? Okay, I didn't, and I just picture him pacing, and I picture him, and then immediately as soon as that's all settled, there's no one else that they can think of, he says, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, to preach the good news, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. You see, this culture, in this Corinthian culture, this ancient Near East culture valued the speaker and their prowess and their talents as much as the message. And again, thankfully, we are above that today, aren't we? We're not drawn to the magniloquence of the speaker we're not drawn to their charisma. We're not drawn to their uh, presence and their clout that they can produce. We're not drawn like the people of Israel were when they looked at Saul because he stood a foot taller than everybody else. Today, tall people don't have advantages over short people, right? 
If we were really being honest, I'd ask, who are your favorite preachers? Some of you might listen to them on the radio or on YouTube or, or download them. Does anybody have a favorite preacher that they, that they will confess? Who? MacArthur. Oh, MacArthur. We'll talk about that later. Um, <laughs> I'd like to see him live out a little more of the grace he talks. Um, who else? Who? Joel? Oh, he's got a big smile. I am so jealous of those teeth, but I don't have the budget to get the new ones put in like he did. Charles Stanley. Charles Stanley? Yep. Are any Keller fans here? I mean, it's a Presbyterian church. I mean, we got to say Keller. This kind of thing. And I don't disparage him at all. I'm just like, I wish I was cool like him. I wish I could be an old man rocking a turtleneck and still be esteemed. Tim Keller can. He's amazing. He's great, right? Of course, you all know the experience of having someone from across the Atlantic be winsome with their lilt and voice. We've discussed it before. We all know that the, 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 like the Alistair Beggs of this world and the, the, the Rob Norrises and the, and the Andrew Smiths, they come over here and they just are winsome. They could be reading the bulletin to us and we're like, yes. That's so good. Could you read the ingredients on the label again? <laughs> we just love it so much. And I did ask my friends at Westminster, and I probably told you this before, I said, oh, do we have that same effect? Oh, when we go over there, they, no. <laughs> so I, in my typical, I, I joked, but do we all sound like rednecks to you? Yes. So they cheat. Okay, good. We have these natural it's only human to be drawn to the gifted orator, the gifted speaker. But then the problem is across our country, thanks to the radio and streaming and YouTube and, radio and everything else that we have, our typical pulpit jockeys that fill the pulpits with a, with a sincere caller, they don't measure up. They don't have whole teams of people where they can spend hours and hours doing research and crafting their message. They have to run a whole church and be there for people all week long. And then they might cover away three, four, five, maybe eight hours in a week to put together a message. And, and maybe they aren't Tim Keller with a photographic memory for decades. Again, I'm jealous. You see, Apollos came in a little bit more like Keller. And he followed Paul, who was a little bit more like just a very intense average show. Now, I think Paul also undercuts himself when he says, I don't speak with eloquence, because he's using rhetorical devices left and right. And he was trained in Tarsus by Gamaliel. He was one of the, the best of the best. So I think he's pretty shrewd about what he's doing there. But he's still creating the point. You see, these divisions that they had that are very human, that are very natural, that are very common, were the very undercutting of the power of the gospel amongst the people. It isn't just that they had divisions. It just isn't that they were, weren't playing nicely with each other. It was that they were stealing the power of God from their midst and replacing it with an old world tradition. You see, Paul said, Christ did not call me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, to preach the good news. 
He appeals to them in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ at verse 10. And let's not skip over that too quickly. You see, the name of Jesus is the authority by which Paul is calling them to account, but it's also the name that unites them to be one, to be together. Paul later asked, were you baptized in the name of Paul? And obviously the, the obvious answer is no. We were baptized in the name of Jesus. That's why we have to look at the cross. That's why we have to look at the good news. What is the good news? What was the good news? Now, in, in the Jewish tradition, the good news, if you go back to Isaiah, the latter part of Isaiah, the good news is a, a proclamation is that the old is gone and Jesus, the Messiah, is here and the new is coming. It's the dawn of the new age where God reigns with us again. And then if you go into the Roman world, the gospel, the good news, the euangelion, is the proclamation that a new emperor was born. A new emperor was born. And, and, and again, we also know that the, if a new emperor is born, that is what? A gift from whom? The gods. So if the new emperor is born, it's a gift from the gods. And they actually thought that the emperor himself was nigh unto one of the gods. And then ultimately, lastly, the good news could be the general. He returns from battle. He comes back to the city, and they all go out to rush and meet him because he returns in victory, because the enemy has been defeated. And Paul says, I come to you with the gospel. I come to you to proclaim the good news, not with fancy words, not with rhetorical devices, not with a great pulpit presence, but I come to you with the power of the cross. Because the Messiah has come. This old, broken world that you and I know all too well has now been defeated. The new is here and beginning. Isaiah, check. Why? Because the emperor, the new king, the new son of the gods was born and he was here. That's good news. Check. And he reigns victorious because he was defeated at the cross. But in his defeat at the cross, he defeated our nemesis, death itself. This is the hope that unites us. This is the hope that's at the very core of the name of Jesus. This is the hope that we have that calls us to gather together, not merely to have wonderful potlucks I hear about next week. It should be a lovely time. but because we are the first fruits of the dawn of the new day, of the new creation world. Somewhere along the way, and I think the people were well-intended, nobody maliciously did this, but somewhere along the way, we flipped the good news about the cross and about Jesus into merely just being get out of hell and into heaven insurance. That's kind of, I was trying to come up with an analogy of it, and I don't really have a good one, but I'll throw the one I came up with. It's kind of like, I, I, well, I, the reason why I thought of it is that last weekend, my wife and I were up in New York, uh, the, central, uh, the Finger Lakes area, and we were celebrating our 20th anniversary, 20 years together. Now, what if 20 years ago, on January 25th, we said our vows, and now we said, look, our name's changed. That's cool. 
And then we went back to living separate. We got married, our names changed. Is it true? Well, yes, but am I kind of just missing out on all everything else that comes with a, a marriage? Yes. I was missing out on the fact that we walk this life together, that we love one another, that we're loyal to one another, that we work through the ups and downs of life, and we, we have someone there when it's hard. We have someone there to, to celebrate with. We, we miss the, the, the fact that we had someone to build a family with, and we have these little kids that on one hand just suck the life out of you, but yet on the other hand feed you with such great joy and bring you delight that nothing else in this world could. And all this is wrapped up into this thing, family. And if we had just said, cool, our names changed, we'd be throwing out all the power of what it means to be married. In the same way, these people are throwing out the power of God when they said, I'm going to hold on, I'm going to take the church, but I'm going to form it in an old world way. You see, the cross transforms the value of our actions and our status. Because of the cross, we must learn to view the world differently. Paul beckons his readers to participate in the story of the cross. He calls them to participate in a narrative in which all that we think and know about the world, its values, its knowledge, its wisdom... It's virtue. It's all reconfigured by God's great act of salvation in Christ. The message of the cross gives shape to the entirety of our life together. This is why he asked them, were you baptized in the name of Paul? I love that because he didn't ask, were you baptized in Apollos? He's not taking and trying to gather his tribe to be the dominant victorious tribe, is he? He's not having the Team Paul people win, so he attacks them directly, head on. Were you baptized in the name of Paul? No. This truth, that you were baptized in the name of Jesus, is the very basis of his admonition. It carries with it the diagnosis of the problem and its solution all in one. The problem is this, that they are claiming other people's names as their identity marker. And the solution is to be united in Christ. For Paul, the ramifications of this division, this party spirit, the ramifications are nothing less than the denial of the gospel itself. So again, I don't see you as a Corinthian church, thankfully. But does this mean that we aren't susceptible to division, that we don't have a proclivity to be human, to divide. Now, does that mean all churches need to be reunited and reunified under one church and have one, we are just solely the singular Christian church? Probably not. That cat's left the bag. But maybe what does it mean? Now, I don't know how many of you were here when you came from the old denomination into the new. But I imagine some of you were here and were participants in that. Now, I never was a part of the old denomination personally, but I went to their school. And I've been, we just had presbytery yesterday. And I was in our presbytery before the big surge of new churches came to us. I was there 16 years ago. And about 15 years ago, you all started coming to us. That makes me an old timer. 
Pretty cool. So, which means I've been around at Presbytery meetings time and time again, and I love them, and they're good. But on occasion, somebody who came from the old world is now celebrating their new joy found in the new world, and they like to turn and look back and take a parting shot. They like to kick it any chance they get. On occasion, some of us who weren't part of that transition have to step up and say, hey, that's not what we're about. You see, it's, is it about making sure that, oh, we're on team right? Which, if I'm going to be honest, is probably at the root of the reformed viewpoints divisions. We love our white papers. We love our writing everything out. We love our, what, what is, what's the phrase? Everything done decently and properly in order. We love having it right. That is good as long as it does what? Serves Jesus, points us to Jesus, unites us towards Jesus. And of course, we'll all admit, do we have it all figured out? Oh, no, of course not. But we need to make sure that that humility isn't a false humility, but is a true humility. That we are playing our part, that we are playing our role. Does that mean all churches need to just respect the readings of the text the way that everybody's... No. Does that mean we need to all do communion the same way? No. Does that mean we need to all do baptism the same way? No. I went to a church that had three sacraments, although they called them ordinances because they couldn't have sacraments. I don't know. Just go with it. They had baptism, the Lord's table, and then the love feast. They also baptized their people three times forward, not in separate occasions, just once, one occasion. But it wasn't hold them under till they really repent. It was three times forward, in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then in my tradition I grew up in, we had to make sure that you, helped, that you did immerse. And then I became a Presbyterian, and then we, we, we sprinkle or we pour. I like, to pour. I like to get as wet as I can. My Baptist roots still want to come out. If I could get a hose. <laughs> I just have that itch. This has no bearing on it, but I did baptize. A gentleman was a Presbyterian. He married a Catholic woman. They had their baby, and they asked me to do the baptism, and I was so honored, and I did the baptism. But I, in my perverse sense of humor, said, oh, let me give you an example of what I do. And I pulled up an Eastern Orthodox baptism. If you've ever seen an Eastern Orthodox baptism, there's this big pool, this round vat, and that priest takes that baby and just, and I mean baby, and dunk some. And she looked at me and she said, if you do that, I will knife you. And I'm like, <laughs> I think that's an overreaction. But noted. She was not impressed with my joke. Uh, but but that means, do we all have to do it the way they do? No. But I think what it does mean is that when our, our, our sisters and brothers are differing and we think it's errant, instead of kicking them when they're down, we grieve for them. Instead of complaining more, we pray for. I heard somebody say that and it's stuck in my memory because it rhymes. But are we going to be complainers about how it's not perfect or are we going to pray for them and grieve for them and do our best to bring unity to the church that God called us to in Jesus. 
That is the key, the central point. If dividing strips away the power of the gospel, we need to try to figure out ways to be united so that we can experience the transforming new world good news. The old is gone, the new has come. God dwelling in and among his people. His, the, the church is his temple in which he dwells, that he's building up until the day he returns. That's our good news. So all I ask for is a little humility that we don't get on our high horses and start to think, while we don't have it all figured out, we're just leading the pack. And when we find somebody else who's doing it wrong, we love them. The biggest lesson that I have from this passage, from this book, from this letter, is that to be honest, if one of, I'm on the ministerial committee, if we had some issues that the Corinthian church had, well, we'd have an administrative commission right away because it's not going well. But we didn't kick them out. We didn't write them off. We don't save the right to make fun jokes at their expense. He starts it off by saying, oh, I love you and I praise God because I see his work in your life. So when you have those churches that irritate you because they, they're missing the point, start off with affirming, but you have Jesus. You have the Holy Spirit. You have the one Lord, one Savior, one baptism. And then pray for them and grieve where they hurt so that we might not only be a little more humble, but we open ourselves up to the transforming power of the good news so that we taste it, experience it, and then our community represents it better to a world that so desperately needs it. Amen? Lord, be with us as we strive to be peacemakers. Be with us as we strive to be unified in Christ. Lord, it's hard. And this world is messed up. And sometimes we take our eyes off of you. And we want to go back to old world ways, God. And so I ask you to forgive us. I ask for you, through your Holy Spirit, to help us to see. And then, Lord, give us wisdom on how to act so that we might, that we might experience the power, the power of Jesus through the cross. Instead of being foolish, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.